You are listening to the New Street X podcast, where we interview people who understand the intersection of physical and digital collectibles. We're entering an exciting world in the collectible space that involves things like sneakers, NFTs, trading cards, fashion, sports, pop culture, and much, much more. And these things are coming together. So we're here to talk to people that understand that, people that are really building the future of collectibles around the world. Thank you so much for listening. Please follow us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the New Street X podcast. I'm excited to have here today a very special guest, Chris Burns. Chris is a sneaker industry analyst, writer, and professor from his website, Arch dash usa.com he writes content analyzing moves in the sneaker market across the different business topics happening in the world of sneakers and culture and he's honestly one of the best most unique insightful voices that i think i found on the internet when it comes to the analysis of the sneaker and footwear industry so chris it's an honor to have you here today thanks so much for being here and, and welcome to the podcast tony i appreciate it thanks for the great introduction man it makes me feel good <laughs> yeah we get it. no it's i i really mean it it's it's a very unique take that you have. You're very prolific. And I think you get into depth, breadth and depth that I honestly don't see often. You know, if you if someone were to just look at, I don't know, CNBC analysis of Nike, it's very kind of high level. I think you really kind of fit a lot of different topics and a lot of different range of not just high level sneaker business, but into very specific topics across like maybe the resale market or even NFTs or like how basketball players would affect different brands and things like that. So with, with that said, I'd love for you to maybe introduce yourself. Maybe we could talk, start talking about like your background, how you got into what you're doing now. Then we can just like kind of dive in, learn more about what you're doing with, with ArchUSA. And yeah, let's get started there. So, so I'd love for you to just introduce yourself and a bit of your background. Okay. Like you said, I'm Chris Burns. I'm the founder or the writer, webmaster, all of those different things for Arch-USA. As a sneaker industry analyst, there's no position, there's no particular school you go to to get that job because it's not really a job. It is for like hedge funds and different companies, data companies. And you probably have an MBA or something to that effect. And you begin to talk about the sneaker industry. I'm a little bit outside of the norm because, you know, Arch-USA actually started as a footwear company. So, you know, I don't want to get too far ahead, but I owned my own sneaker company. So I made my shoes, designed my shoes. I actually brought in a designer and paid a designer to design shoes. I did a lot of different stuff with Arch. And as it progressed, it was an e-commerce platform. And so I had all of these experiences that kind of opened me up to analyzing the sneaker industry, including being the online store for a seven-store chain in Mississippi, which transitioned me into sneaker analyst because I saw firsthand what was happening with the closure or the removal of Nike accounts from different stores and how stores had to start selling or had to spend this enormous amount of money to upgrade their stores to keep their Nike accounts. And I started documenting it on the website when I stopped making shoes. So I stopped making shoes around 2015, 2016, but I was also running e-commerce, like I said. So I had these outrageous numbers for e-commerce. So with Arch, the website, the way it is, the data, all of that stuff, I'm not reaching out to different people for data. I do what's called a micro to macro comparison. And I use my own data sets. So most of the time when you talk to someone who's an analyst, 
they have to wait three months to get point of sales data. And in the sneaker industry, it moves too fast. So if your information is three months old, you really can't help a brand outside of telling them what sizes sold, the amount they sold for, the colors or things like that. I can tell a person in real time, hey, this is what sold today. And I can give them a breakdown of everything because I've been using these platforms for so long, these different e-commerce platforms and these third-party retail sites. But that's a long introduction. I used to be a basketball coach, all this other stuff, man. So there's a lot. There's a lot. If you want to dig, we can dig. I feel like we we could spend 10 hours digging. So I'm trying to think in my head, like, where, where do we dig now? Where do we dig later? So one thing I would just remark on is that what you just described is pretty unique, right? Like not everybody who might be writing as a, macro analysis analyst of like Nike has actually sold shoes or designed shoes or, you know, really gotten deep into it. So I think that gives you something both from a data perspective you're, you mentioned, but also just your own personal experience, right? So it's something that's truly like a first-hand thing you've dealt with. I want to dive into actually the the Nike account part with, with stores because again, like I feel like you have a lot of wisdom and knowledge there. But quickly before I get into that, so the I, again, I'd recommend everybody go to arch-usa.com. But are you writing for a particular business audience, certain types of people? Like for, for someone going to your website, what should they expect? Because for my personal opinion, as I go into it, it gives me really, really deep insight on, again, not just like the macro of like, hey, here's like how I would project Nike's success or how well they've been doing over the last six months or year or, or Adidas or whatever. But it also gets into like, you, you mentioned, like I mentioned, like kind of micro examples of an issue happening in the sneaker industry. So maybe for someone that hasn't been to the website, how would you describe the kind of content and maybe the target audience or what kind of stuff you're writing about? You asked if it was for a particular audience. Sometimes it is. So what will happen is a brand will say, hey, Chris, can you write us a white paper on, or a retailer may say, hey, Chris, can you write us a white paper explaining why sales are slow in this region or sales are slow here or why is this brand not performing well? So, and what tends to happen is I'll write it and then I'll put it on the website and remove the brand. So it will be more generic and it won't address who I wrote it for because I'll tend to have like like non-disclosure agreements and things like that where I can't say specifically who I'm talking about. So in many instances, when you see something that's a lot more detailed, and like right now on the site, the store is not up. So you could buy those reports. You could buy the reports. And in that regard, it's for businesses, CEOs, C-suite people, managers, different people in the sneaker industry. It's for those people. But I recently got a round of funding. And that has allowed me to start switching the website over to more of a media company where I'm going to partner with brands. So the content now, you can go and you'll see all of the sneaker video unboxings or you'll see food reviews. Like, you know, I'll go to Miami and I'll write a food review of the places that I went to in Miami or I'll go to Tallahassee and I'll write, you know, and I'll do an article. So you can see food reviews. You can see articles on cars, anything that touches the sneaker culture lifestyle, which is everything in life. The website carries all of that information now. So in a way, you get really good articles on bigger websites because they have a huge staff of people. They tend to have 10 or 15 writers or five to 10 writers. It's just me writing and I'm writing all of this different kind of content. Even movie reviews are on the site now. But 
the site originally, like I said, began as a sneaker company, transitioned into a discussion on business and e-commerce, and then became more about the lifestyle and added the lifestyle. So it's still about the business and e-commerce aspects, but it's also lifestyle. So I'll write articles for companies if I'm requested to write articles, or I'll create my own list or top five list or, you know, just cool content, things about the music industry, you know, just kind of in general, I'm covering every base. And I recently, I didn't get a really talented guy named Mike Chatfield. And he's writing a series on the site called In the Field. So he's the first writer that I've had since about five years ago, where I tried to build a network of websites, but everybody didn't want to kind of stick with the website. They wanted to go and branch off and do their own things. So I taught them how to do everything. And then they went off and started doing their own thing. So I used to have another couple of writers on the site, but they wanted to build out their own websites and they went away. And, you know, you see Wu-Tang behind me. I'm big on like, you know, teams coming together and kind of forming Voltron and let's get this information together so we can grow. And it's extremely difficult to grow a website because most of the time you can't pay people, you know, and everybody wants to get paid up front. So I don't ask people to do anything. I simply do it myself. So when you go in and you see a book review, which there's probably 30 or 40 book reviews on the site, which you won't see on a sneaker site, but I have business books that I've read that I'll do a review for. So those are on the site. So you can go and read a book review of Shoe Dog, you know, and it's just a really cool kind of, the site is just a really kind of cool site. Hopefully that answered the question and I didn't just ramble. No, it's, no, that's a great, it's a great answer. I mean, I, I love that this kind of came organically from you again, being a, in the sneaker business. And then I wanted to touch on something you mentioned earlier about how you're noticing like change in how Nike accounts work with, with retailers. So maybe just to take a step back, because I'd love to, you know, tap into your expertise here, but the way my understanding is, and let me know if I've got this right, but you know, Nike, uh, the, the whole range of retailers in the world, whether we're talking about like the sort of mass, let's say foot lockers to the sort of hot boutique stores in like a New York or LA, or maybe like in the, in maybe like kind of mid range, lower range retailers that aren't as big national names, Nike treats these companies differently in terms of who they allow or who they provide so like inventory to. And having a Nike account is, is fairly coveted. Is that how it works? I just love to know like how that works exactly, how a store has a Nike account, and then maybe how that has changed, if it has, and that's like 10, 15 years as retail has really changed in general. Yeah, retail's changed a lot. As far as Nike handing out accounts or offering accounts, if you remember in 2017, Nike did an investor's day called the Scale of Sport. And at that time, they said that they had over 30,000 partners. That means 30,000 wholesale accounts. All of these different companies that they were working with who had Nike accounts. And they whittled that down to 40. That, that, sorry, that's an insane. I, I didn't realize it was that dramatic. So 30,000 30, to 40. Yeah, most people don't know that. Yes. I know it sounds like an insane number. It may be even a bigger number than that. Now, it's funny because just recently Nike started adding accounts back. So they took people's accounts and then they started adding them back. So I was involved early when that began. So a lot of people think like, oh, Nike direct to consumer and all these different things just started happening five years ago. Six, It didn't. It started happening in 2012 when Nike.com was born, the website. It disrupted the growth of Foot Locker. 
for years, Foot Locker and Nike were joined at the hip. Uh, if you go back and look at the stock of both companies, it was parallel. As Foot Locker grew, Nike grew. So you had this kind of relationship. Now, obviously, that relationship became fractured in the last few years, but the first start of movement for Nike into direct-to-consumer happened with the launch of Nike.com, which completely, because you could go back and look at some of the data around Foot Locker and their e-commerce growth out of the gate was explosive. And then it kind of settled as Nike started to grow. And if you start looking at the data around the Nike website traffic and things like that, you get this story that starts forming. So with Nike or Nike, I don't know what people want to call it, but I mean, for me with Nike, when they started thinking direct to consumer, it was a long extended process that happened over years. This was not a quick progression. Now, I I think what you're kind of referring to is when they started pulling these accounts from people, or you were saying, how did people get accounts? Well, you just connect with a Nike salesperson. And, you know, if they feel that your store meets a certain standard, then you could probably get a Nike account. But that's not the way it is anymore. Because they've gotten rid of so many wholesale accounts. In 2014 was when I first initially started noticing these accounts being pulled. And no one was talking about it. So I was working with a chain in Mississippi. They had seven stores. Nike came in and told this chain they needed to redesign the entire store to keep their Nike account. But it wasn't just that one chain. There was a mom and pop three-store chain in Mississippi as well. And they were required to change their account. But by 2015, the seven-store chain was a five-store chain. It cost them half a million dollars to update their stores. Half a million dollars for these small stores in Mississippi or Nike would have pulled their accounts. And it's not me trying to make Nike out to be the bad guy. This is just good business. If you control most of your sales, you make a lot more money. The margins are better. But in the process of Nike cutting these wholesale accounts, they were cutting mom and pop shops. They were getting rid of, you know, you saw these retailers just going on models, these longtime stores. And, it, and you know, it has to be a specific question because I'll go off on these tangents because it was such a broad scope of things that happened. Like the original Nike Jordan brand account was a store called Sammy's. And that's here in Memphis. It was Sammy's Men of Fashion. They were the first ones to lose their account. And they were one of the original Jordan brand accounts. Sammy actually had a picture of Michael Jordan on his wall hanging out at the store. So, you know, that had been signed. When they lost their account, I knew something was going on, but it didn't have a name yet. And it didn't get a name until 2017. And when it was called the Consumer Direct Offense. So around 2017, I'm like, odd, this is the name of it. And Nike began to remove certain measurements that Wall Street would look at to say how Nike is performing. But, you know, it's, it's really convoluted and it's a, it's a long, I don't want to ramble too much because like I said, this ends up being something that's a 10 hour series, man, because it's so, I wrote the book about it. So I just have all of this stuff in my head. And if it's, I'll get off on 
different paths. You have to control me here. You have to, hey, Chris, let's pull back and cut me off. No, 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 Chris, I want to say like, thank you. This is exactly the kind of, one of the reasons why I knew you'd be fantastic on on the podcast because of your your knowledge here and your ability to go into tangents, right? And, and maybe I'll keep that in mind. Maybe I'll, I'll be directed because again, maybe that's like a 10-part series we'll do another time about. Uh, wanted to, again, point out what you were saying. Like you co-authored a book where it's called Nike's Consumer Direct Offense, Amazon and StockX, The Disruption of Sneaker Retail. I got that correct. Now, maybe a question I have just thinking about this right now is now... In my head, if I was a Nike executive in, like, let's say, the early 2000s, what would I be thinking about as the reason why I need to pull away and maybe, in, in, in many ways, hurt harm, if not destroy some of these relationships that have been longstanding with retailers, physically like Sammy's, for perhaps decades? Was it purely the decision based on the fact that you know, e-commerce in general was growing, Nike wanted to own the ex- experience because, I guess, the knock-on effects were probably also the creation of like the Nike sneakers app, right? For a few more, a few years later. And like maybe making Nike stores themselves a bigger spectacle, a more of an attractive place versus maybe they didn't invest in them as much pre- prior to that. But I guess maybe just the the question to like narrow down what I'm asking here, because again, you're right. There's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things that we could be talking about. Was the main motivation for Nike to reinvent how they approach retail just kind of tackling the internet and e-commerce like what was going through their head is the pros and cons because that is a pretty dramatic move but probably is good for their business right yeah yeah that that question is really the answer that was such a good question it was the answer it was all of those things it's the advancement of e-commerce it's the good business practice of increasing margins right i mean think about it like this if you have a product and it costs a hundred dollars to wholesale it it costs sixty dollars you sell it for 60 to a store or you sell it for 100 yourself you make more money so it's just a logical kind of move but nike if you look back at the history of it or you start looking at articles you'll see a lot of words about differentiated retail and the reason nike like the the chain that I was helping out with their e-commerce, they wanted that chain to look a certain way. So that chain went in and had pictures of LeBron put up on the walls. They redesigned the entire store. And once the stores looked a certain way, Nike was like, okay, cool. You can keep your account. But that chain ended up selling to Jimmy Jazz. So here was this bigger retailer. And even Jimmy Jazz went in to their stores and redesigned all of their stores And then Jimmy Jazz sold to Snipes. So you have smaller stores selling to a bigger chain, to a bigger chain selling to an even bigger chain. And it's creating a marketplace for Nike that they can better control what their product looks like inside of those retail doors. Nike didn't want, and this may not even be true once I said, Nike didn't want to walk in the store and see clutter. They wanted it clean. They wanted it unique. They wanted to look a certain way. And if it didn't, you didn't get to keep their store. But that would be true if, and I'm going to pull a book out, this dude didn't exist. And how sneakers ruined my life, right? <laughs> this is uh, Trent out loud. Trent, he owned a store called Exclusity up in Canada. And he had opened up 10 stores. And this book, this How Sneakers Ruined My Life, his store was a flagship. It was a beautiful store. Now, as far as the different things that he may have been doing out of that store, a lot of people say that he was backdooring shoes and all of this. That's not my concern. 
when I say that Nike said that they wanted differentiated retail, that these stores had to be beautiful, they had to be laid out, they had to look good, they couldn't be just kind of crappy mom and pop stores, right? They wanted them to look elevated. They wanted a better form. Well, he had a better form of retail and they still got rid of him. So that may, we can say that Nike wanted these things, but is it true? Because there's a, a store chain that was called Looking Good, right? And they had three locations in small towns. They actually got hit by a tornado, right? And that store chain before that had lost their Nike account. They reached out, talked with Nike, with their reps. Nike said, we'll give you account back again if you fix your store a certain way. Now, just so happened they got hit by a tornado, so they had to redo the store anyway. But they had already lost their account. They redid the store. Nike gave them the account back. Two years later, Nike took the account back. So here is this mom and pop store that's really the only kind of shop in town outside of a big conglomerate like a Hibbit Sports that's there in that city. This was the only other competitor to that bigger chain. And they got rid of the smaller chain in favor of working with the bigger chain. Those are good business practices. It helps the bigger chains to sell through more inventory. There's, there's Nike isn't a villain. Nike simply a good business. But there's a change that happened at Nike after 2017, after that scale of sport, when Nike, you know, and I know we're focused so heavily on Nike, because, but they've run the sneaker industry. You know, so we can have these conversations about all of these brands across the board and I can give you these dates and all of this other stuff. But Nike, because they're such, they control so much, you know, mind share. This is how we are when we talk about it. N Nike's just a good business, but things changed. And now I think the scale of sport, that 2017 Investors Day, on that panel, there was about 10 to 15 people that spoke. There's not even barely, there's barely maybe four or five people left out of all of those people that spoke that day. Nike's a completely different company now. They are more tech-driven. The soul of the athlete, I no longer see in Nike. I used to feel that Nike was the soul of the athlete. And that's what resonated for everybody. You have these memories that are associated with Nike and there's it's just intrinsically tied to sport. It is now a tech company and it's a, it's a tech company making bad decisions. And one of those is like, the acquisition of Artifact, right? Old Nike would not have rushed into paying for this NFT company that is now, NFTs are dead. And people, someone wrote me yesterday and said, why don't you write about what's happening with Dot Swoosh? I said, because right now that's just a saving, they have to save that acquisition. They have to put money into it because if they don't, it's going to go down as a really bad choice a really bad tech choice, but that's what happens when you're no longer led by the person who thinks athlete first and they think tech first. And all of these moves are really tech driven, you know? So all of these moves feel more tech driven than heart. Phil Knight, when you read Swoosh, it's about athletes. It's the story of giving athletes what they need to become great. And Nike was always that. And now it feels like other brands are simply doing that better even though Nike's still the king of the mountain. There's honestly so many subtopics that this like could lead into. So I, I really want to talk about as many as I can, but I'm going to pick on one that 
maybe related to the last sentence you said, but considering your your feelings about Nike, maybe having being less athlete driven, perhaps making mistakes with things like Artifact, they still dominate, obviously, in terms of market share and revenue. But I, you know, I, I saw recently you were on NPR talking about is is Nike past its peak? I love to just get your take on maybe the brand landscape and the competitive landscape. You know, I mean, I would say arguably if the hottest shoes were primarily Nike and they still probably are, the 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 headspace, the mind space of people that actually want hot shoes that are maybe Solomon's, New Balance, of course, Yeezys, which is a whole other topic, that that mind share, I would say, from what I'm aware of, has increased. But of course, Nike still uh, at its peak. Uh, sorry, is Nike still dominating? How do you see the competitive landscape evolving, maybe based on how things have changed over the last couple of years? And do you think in the next few years, will we have a more, let's say, spread out market share across different brands that aren't just Nike? I definitely think it's going to be more spread out. Definitely think it. Nike is the beast. They're huge, right? And whenever people ask me a question like, how is the market going to shape up? I say this, Nike's a castle, right? Castles have moats. Castles also have a foundation. And when you get a crack in the foundation, the water and the different things that can hit in those cracks, they chip away at it. But it doesn't happen quickly. And you don't see it taking place. So Nike is a castle with a foundation with cracks. Before, they had these really good masons who would go out and fix those cracks. And they could shut off that water from entering those cracks, right? They no longer have the masons. So... If we're looking at Nike and the Masons have walked out and these Masons are moving into all of these different spaces and creating these different brands and helping and working with these different brands, then you won't ever see Nike crumble and fall. You'll simply see the erosion. You won't see the erosion. You'll begin to notice that the castle doesn't look as sturdy as it used to. The foundation is just kind of getting shaky. Now, Nike is unique in that Nike, the moat that's around Nike, and I talk about this in my book, is the cash customer. So Nike will always be elevated by the cash customer. And I won't say what race or culture or anything else. I'll simply say the cash customer is the moat around the castle. So you can shoot over the moat and you can hit people that are on there protecting the castle. But because that moat is there, Nike's protected, but the foundation is getting slowly eroded. And when I say the foundation is getting eroded, I go immediately to a company like Brooks Running, where sneaker culture, they left it behind. Brooks used to have uh, a classic line, right? And it included like the Brooks Beast from the 90s. And these shoes look like, you know, when people think about old dad shoes and New Balance running shoes from the 90s, Brooks and these companies all had those kind of shoes. Brooks totally removed these old school casual shoes from their site. And Brooks squarely focused on performance running and great shoes designed for people looking to get fit. And then they built that community up. And all of a sudden, last year, you had Brooks become a billion dollar company. That only happens because Nike is so focused on tech and Nike allowed the crack to stay open. And that's what I mean when the foundation has cracks in it. These little bitty water paths starts to get inside and erode. Brooks eroded. 
Hoka is eroding. On Running is eroding. These brands, it's becoming spread out. When you mention a Solomon, which is an outdoor company, Solomon is interesting because they don't have a huge mind share. It's a fashion brand. It's more elevated. But those people that are buying Solomon's, I'm almost hesitant to say that they're the same people who were buying Jordan's. I'm almost hesitant to say that because the people who are buying those Solomon, they are leaning heavily into fashion and Japanese fashion in particular. And Japanese fashion isn't solely focused on Nike. They are focused on elevated, beautiful products. And that can come from anywhere. And they create these trends that kind of trickle out across the rest of the market. So you have these different things that are happening that are allowing other brands to elevate. Will they run and catch up with Nike? Nike's a castle with a cash customer moat. It's going to be very hard for people to catch Nike because they will always have that cash customer who will only wear Nike and Jordan. That's a fantastic analogy with the castle. And maybe to to, to build on that for a second, perhaps the, the, the second biggest castle that was getting stronger and stronger for a while was Adidas. And of course, through through Yeezy, I think particularly when it comes to like the, the streetwear, resale, hot hype market, Yeezy was was doing super well and, and still, still is. Of course, Adidas has come through challenges. You know, the severing the relationship with Kanye West has made a lot of this more difficult. But where do you see, let's say, Adidas, who maybe if we were talking a couple of years ago, it'd be like, wow, they're probably the strongest competitor. Now they're in a much weaker position. And you didn't mention Adidas, for example, in those brands you just described. Where, where do you see like that company, which has obviously a very strong history as well? What's their stake in this sort of market share sneaker war that's, that's, that's going to always be going on? Uh, Adidas is the second biggest. So by default, they're right there behind Nike. And when I overlook Adidas, it's not an intentional overlooking of Adidas. I happen to think Adidas is turning the ship in the right direction. Now, a lot of people would obviously disagree with me that the loss of Kanye was a good thing or yay, the loss of Yeezy was a good thing for Adidas. And I, I'm, I'm probably the only person who will ever say something like that because losing a billion dollar business is not good for anybody. But you have to remember Adidas is a $22 billion a year company. It hurt North America. It did not hurt Adidas. And the irony is listening to sneakerheads and sneaker. Co- oh, Kanye, they did. I'm like, do you understand that Adidas is a $20 billion a year company? <laughs> yeah, a billion dollars is a lot, specifically in North America, specifically in North America. But so Rupert Campbell, right? And I'm, man, I sometimes I forget names, but Rupert was just leading North America. So he was, okay, he, he was head of North America for Adidas, okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, he stepped down day before yesterday. So at the time, I mean, we're recording this, and I'm saying day before yesterday. So I think that was around the 10th of October. I'll give it a date. He only had the job for a year. However, or a year and a half or so, 2022, January 2022 is when he got the job, right? He got a, a, he got a bad product. And why do I say that? North America, I think it was Mark King who was there earlier, 2014, Adidas saw its biggest growth, interestingly enough, from around 2012 to 2016. That's pre-Yeezy. Now, Kanye is signed around 2014. Everybody thinks, oh, Kanye lifted it. No. Before Kanye got there, there was a shoe, the ZX Flux. 
a printed ZX Flux. And that thing was reselling for $200 a pair. And people act like they don't remember that. And then Ultra Boost. And somebody's like, well, Kanye Warden, that's why it blew up. No, Ultra Boost was selling in the running community. Adidas was focused on product development. So they had Ultra Boost. They had that ZX Flux retro shoe with the print on it that was doing fantastic in sneaker culture, right? And then they introduced NMD. And NMD was explosive. But this is the problem. Adidas is creating all of this great product. And now they start dabbling with the Kanye stuff. In North America, they had all of these women running around wearing superstars and Stan Smiths. So Adidas was killing it. And everybody's like, oh, Adidas has jumped over the jump, man. And I'm like, that's not quite true, but I get why you're saying that. They were crushing it. And then Yeezy came along. And the previous person that was the head of North America, he steps away. The new guy comes in. And not Rupert. I can't remember the name right now. It's slipping me. I'm, I'm going to have to pull it up real quick. The new guy comes in and he goes to an influencer-focused strategy for North America. Kanye gets a, a bigger release of the sneaker. Everything's Yeezy. NMD starts to drop. No importance, no energy. Superstar Stan Smith starts to drop. No energy. Everything's going to Yeezy. Ivy Park, Beyonce, all these influencers. And then you get Fear of God three years ago, right? And there's been nothing from Fear of God at all. But you've given all of this energy in North America to these influencers and fashion people, and you've taken the focus off a of product when you got these amazing employees inside of the company making this great product, doing all of this really good work, but you're not highlighting those employees. You're not highlighting the product anymore. You got this amazing running shoe in the Adios or the Boston. Nobody knows it exists because in North America, you gave everything to Yeezy. Now, Rupert comes in, takes over. Longtime Adidas man. And in the last year, you get a reinvigorated marketing campaign, especially since Kanye's been gone. You get a reinvigorated marketing campaign with a thousand, right? You now get to guess wearing the Adios Pro Evo 1 and breaking records. All of these different things start to take shape, and now he steps down. And I hope it's not something bad why he steps down, but you start to get these fantastic moments in the last year coming from Adidas because they are no longer capable of sitting there and just sticking a Yeezy on the wall and selling it. They have to work harder. So Adidas is the second company. They're a big company. The only reason I don't mention them is because those smaller brands are whittling away at the foundation. And I think that's a more, that's a bigger discussion to have than simply pitting three stripes against a swoosh. Yeah, that that is such a thoughtful way to frame the situation and everything Adidas has been doing right, right or wrong over the last few years. Matt, I, I honestly, more than any other time before, I feel like there's so much to cover and so only only so much time we have left. But I, one one massive topic that we haven't even discussed yet that I'd love to maybe uh, get your take on, I'm trying to think of what the best angle is here, is you, know, you talk about Nike going back to the point about how they've shifted their retail strategy. Now, when I think about what sneakers means to me, and, and I know this is maybe perhaps focused on a particular audience, but the resale market, right? You know, the rise of 
StockX, GOAT, you know, not just in North America, but also, you know, like Poison in China and all the European equivalents, et cetera. If I think about existentially what these big brands are dealing with right now, the whole like resale game has exploded in the last 10 years. I see it continuing to grow. I'd love to know if, if, you, if you disagree in any way, but... I disagree. Okay, well, yeah, maybe let, let's just dive in with that then. What's, what's your current take on the resale market? One, just, I guess, your opinion perspective, but two, how does a brand... Like, like Nike or Adidas react to that, right? Because should they be trying to take, take part in some of the profit that comes from secondary sales, you know? Like, and is, is that something they, sh- they should do? I think it refurbished or? They already are. They, they, they already are. So just the fact that you said take part in that process, Nike refurbished. Now, there's this interesting thing where everybody's sharing Nike refurbished right now. Nike refurbished, if you go back, Four years ago, there was a website called Rescue, Rescue, R-E-S-K-U, Ski, Rescue. They were taking Nikes, cleaning them. And when I saw it, I was like, that's Nike. That's not Rescue. That's Nike. Nike's cleaning these shoes and they're selling these shoes and they're using it as a test program. And immediately when Rescue was shut down, Nike refurbished launched. And that was over two years ago and nobody wrote about it. I was the only person that wrote about it and people didn't pick up on it. And now all of a sudden, Nike adds it as a tag, as a website, and they show these Jordans on there when they had the things there the whole time. And if you went into certain stores, Nike had refurbished sections in their their live, the Nike Live stores, the Nike Unite stores. They had sections for refurbished already. So I didn't write about this recent thing where the website popped up because I was like, it's redundant. They already had started doing that. There was no reason to bring it up. Now, how does that chip into resale? The the, the sneaker resale market has always been dudes trading sneakers, the idea of nearly dead stock, very nearly dead stock. These different terms that people use to sell used shoes on eBay. Nike has simply taken that process away and they're selling them. Now, that doesn't mean that resale is dead. When people say that the resale market is going to continue to grow, it's going to continue to grow because there's just too much crap out here. Now, that doesn't mean that it's good growth. Resale has been declining since 2011. And I have proof and I have tons of reports and data showing a decline in resale. The only time it shows a spike is when something prominent happens. So eBay, things like that, back in the 2000s, Everybody was on eBay. Amazon opened up and they bought Zappos. So here's Zappos. They buy Zappos. Amazon learns how to sell shoes and they open up the seller central marketplace to third party sellers. There's an exodus from eBay to Amazon. The big event that slowed down resale during that point was Amazon took away the requirements that it took for you to get on seller central and it opened up the floodgate for fakes. And then brand gating happened. And brand gating allowed resale to look like it was going back up again. And this is around 2014. But then you had Nike dump a bunch of product in the marketplace, a bunch of Jordan 6s, foam posits with paint on them, the thermal, the thermal uh, electro camo foam posits, all of these different foam posits that didn't do very well, that tanked. The Jordan 6 lows all tanked. They didn't do well. But Jordan brand Nike had all of these really good people on the inside. They pulled back, they picked it up, and they started doing direct-to-consumer. And this kind of righted the ship, and you saw, you know, a slowdown in resale. 
But in 2016, something interesting happened, and that was the shift of Campless, the website, to StockX and the launch of StockX. That created a bigger access point. But I explain this to people all the time. Um, Syndrome. You'll hear me use this analogy all the time. Syndrome in The Incredibles, the comic, right? The movie, the animated movie, The Incredibles. Syndrome is the villain. Syndrome's entire point is to make everybody incredible. Why? Because once everybody's incredible, no one's incredible. StockX is syndrome. And that's not me saying a bad thing. It's simply saying that StockX, resale used to consist of people who had to know how to take pictures, know how to take a risk. Here's what I'm going to buy and keep in stock and sell. You had to be a business person to be in resale. You had to have backdoor hookups. You had to have front door hookups. You had to have every kind of You had to have cash on hand, money, all of these different things that you needed to be an effective reseller. StockX made it so that you don't need anything. StockX made it a level playing field. But in doing so, it invited the world into resale. And once everybody's a reseller, no one is. So everybody's like, well, why is the market dropping? The market had always been declining. You have these small moments of things that pop up. StockX pops up. Goat pops up. Grail pops up. That was a shift that creates a spike. And then things start back to settling down. So what was the thing that made it spike again after StockX when it was starting to go back down? It was trending down. We know it's trending down. COVID. So 2020 happens. Supply chains gets disrupted. There's all of this product. Nike had not started feeding China. So you had these huge groups of Asian families over in America running through the country, buying up Jordan one mids and Jordans. And it made it hyper competitive because these families of Asians who were selling on the poison app, which you mentioned poison earlier, they're selling on the poison app. And because Nike hadn't flooded out China with Jordan brand products yet, it looked like this market needed more Jordan 1 mids and Jordan 1 high OG. So Nike does what? They have a program that they call Edit to Amplify, and they begin to overduce Jordan 1s. Now, today, everybody's like, well, why aren't the Jordan 1s selling? Well, this is the thing. As Poison and China opened up and Nike started to feed them, they started putting these pictures on these different websites of retro sitting on the wall in China. Well, that killed the Poison app and Poison had to start expanding. And now they're starting to come into the U.S. market, right? They have to expand because now the product is in China in abundance. This begins to make resale decline. Nike overproduces that particular shoe. They treat it like a Chuck Taylor. They give us every Jordan one we ever wanted, every color. And now the value of that shoe is decreasing. All of these people trying to resell it, There's no sense of FOMO because there's a new release every week. The market begins to drop. Now, will there be another spike? I don't think so. I think it's finally where it's supposed to be. Resale was never supposed to be about buying something the day it released and flipping it. Resale was always meant to be, this dude needs this sneaker and he stays in Iowa and they don't have it in his neighborhood. I'm going to get that dude that shoe. I'm going to upcharge him 20, 30 bucks. I'm going to make that money. I'm good. Resale used to be, that's an extremely difficult shoe to find. Let's resell it. Resale used to be arbitrage. 
they marked all of these shoes down to $19.99 at Foot Locker. I'm going to buy all of those $19.99s and I'm going to go flip them for $49.99 on, on Amazon. Resale was arbitrage. Resale was extremely hard to find shoes. Resale is simply reverting back to what it once was. It's not going anywhere because there's always going to be someone that doesn't have that release in their city. The people using bots and stuff like that, it should have never been that way. Should have never been that way in the first place. Now, of course, people are going to always game the system, but I think the consumer is getting smart. And I think the consumer is like, you know what? Go ahead and bottom. I think most of the stuff that you're seeing that gets bought and someone gets a bunch of it, I think the people buying it are buying it from each other to try and resale. I don't think those are regular people buying those shoes. You know what I'm saying? I don't think those people are buying those shoes. I think those are other people buying to resell them and flip them themselves. The regular consumer is like, yo, those ons are kind of fresh. I want to try that as a running shoe. I don't need to go and get that Nike that's limited. Yo, that Solomon is kind of dope. There may not be a lot of those. I'm going to go and get me a Solomon shoe. I'm going to keep it moving. You see what I'm saying? I think people are becoming more open to trying these different brands. And that fear of missing out is starting to decline. However, you have a complete segment of the population that's tapped into Nike and they won't talk about or do anything else. But I think that population of people is now becoming a true echo chamber. For a minute, it expanded out to the regular consumer. I think it's back to being an echo chamber of people that are quote unquote sneakerheads who only want the hype sneaker that's dropping from Nike and Jordan brand. And that's all that they're going to talk about. There's nothing wrong with that. You have people that do that. But resale, when you talk about resale, I think that resale is finally back where it was pre-quarantine 2019 when it was declining. And you had people that were not engaging in this FOMO. You now have people that are simply buying what they can't find. And you know that's happening because a company like StockX now has Express Ship, right? They're going to they're gonna have to either do consignment or they're going to have to buy and take on product at a low cost and sell it themselves because there are not enough people out there reselling anymore. It doesn't have the value that it once did, especially on that release day shoe. You've given me so much to think about, Chris, and I appreciate the, all the different angles you've been talking about. And, and unfortunately, we, we, we only have like a few minutes left. So this makes me think like, if you're down for it, we should do some other conversations sometime soon. But maybe in closing, I ask the same two questions from every guest. The first being, where can people find you? You know, on, on website, social media, LinkedIn, whatever. And the second question, I love, I can't wait to hear your answer to this, but What's like one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? People can find me on LinkedIn, Christopher D. Burns, MFA. Well, that's where I'm most active is on LinkedIn. I have a IG, but if you go there, you're going to see like pictures that I took when I was driving like Lyft or something. It's just the most random thing from these pictures I took back in like 2017. Uh, it's not very active. Uh, the website is the best place to find me because I write or post something every day. So arch-usa.com is the best place to find me. Uh, what was the other question? Uh, yeah, sometimes people talk about, you know, a topic that they're excited about, you know, call to action or like, oh, I really think this is underrated. This is something I'm passionate about. There are fantastic stories in sneakers. There are these amazing stories that get overlooked because people are so focused on what they've missed out on, what they didn't hit on. And what I would hope is people are starting to pay attention and wake up 
to the fact that there are hundreds of sneaker companies and all of those companies have jobs. And as opposed to being committed to one brand, how about you begin to diversify your closet and talk about different things so you can get jobs at these companies? (laughs) Open up the floor of discussion so other things can grow and more jobs become available or more opportunities become available. Make it hard for people to simply be controlled by one thing. I like Nike just as much as everybody, but I mean, I'm wearing 99 products right now. So these dots that you see on my chest, that's Jeff Henderson. He's a guy that designed a lot of the Nike retro shoes that people are running around in running shoes. Jeff Henderson, it's a black guy. I'm wearing 99 products. I'm going to hold my shoe up, right? My closet is diverse. I love sneakers. There's no one that can sit down and be like, yo, I love sneakers. I mean, I get the idea of being loyal to one brand, but I'm saying open it up so other things existed. I had a shoe company. It was the hardest thing to get people to try my brand. And what people don't realize is eventually you're going to want to start something. You're going to want to start a business. You're going to want to start a clothing company of some kind, and you're going to want people to support you. But you are so brand loyal to one thing You destroy the opportunity for yourself in the future if you want to grow something different. Expand your options. Look into different things. Try the new stuff. Try the new stuff. And if you don't like it, go back and keep rocking retro. But look at these new things. Look at how creative these companies really are and celebrate that. And that's really what I I want to kind of end it with. Of course, I want people to go to the website because I'm like, hey, I love to be as big as the big sneaker websites and stuff and do conventions because I would do hiring conventions instead of having just cool clothes convention, cool clothes and hype and stuff like that. I would do hiring. I would go out, organize entire conventions built around getting jobs in the industry. That's what I would do if the website gets big enough. So people go to the website. Chris, it it has been an absolute delight speaking with you. I hope this is not the last, but maybe the first of many times we can talk like this again. I just wanted to thank you again one more time for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to the work that's being done by New Street. So hopefully you guys will keep building and growing and attacking that collectible marketplace (laughs) and do great things, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Chris. Thank you for listening to the New Street X podcast. You can learn more about the guest in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Please make sure to like, follow, subscribe across YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much. See you next time.